welcome back to a live episode of Behind the Lens for the first time in a couple weeks. I have been down and out with the flu. Still have some tinges. We're in day 18 now. Uh, Very exciting. I can't hear myself. My ears are clogged. I can't hear myself. So Pam may have to play with the audio today. But I'm back and we have a, a very full show for you today. I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens. When you can find my movie reviews and interviews in print and online 24-7, including on BehindTheLensOnline.net. But every Monday, you will find, barring death and illness, you will find me right here, 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern Time, on AdrenalineRadio.com. And don't forget, you can actually pick us up on the AdrenalineRadio.com Facebook page. If you want to see a boring live stream, um, sometimes I have a really cool-looking tablescape. Today is a semi-cool tablescape with some Dumbo swag. Because, yes, we're going to talk about the number one movie at the box office this week, Dumbo. And got to say, Captain Marvel is number three. So Disney is doing okay. Um, But, as I said, big show today. We're going to get into Dumbo in a minute here, but... Just want to give you a heads up here that coming up at roughly the quarter hour mark, we're going to have Max Carlson and Sean Austin, co-writers. Max is a director of an incredible, incredible new film from them, Princess of the Row. Um, It is heartfelt. It is, there's parts that are difficult to watch. It is hopeful. Um, Breakout performance by young Taylor Buck. Uh, we're going to take a look at Skid Row in this narrative feature and a young girl uh, who cares for her father, an Iraq war veteran who suffers from brain trauma and PTSD. Uh, an incredible, incredible, incredible film to watch. Uh, the emotional levels are just off the charts. So I can't wait to talk to Max and Sean about it. And at the half hour mark, Pat McGee is going to join us to talk about His new documentary, American Relapse. Some of you may know Pat from his prior work, most notably Dope Sick Nation. Here with American Relapse, we go to Delray Beach, Florida, the drug rehab capital of the world, uh, which was news to me. And we meet uh, two individuals, Frankie and Allie, both former addicts who now spend their time helping other addicts to get them off the street, get them cleaned up, get them detoxed, and get them on a new path for life. Spend a weekend, 72 hours, with Frankie and Allie and the various people that they encounter. Um, It is an extremely cinematic film and beautifully shot, which is a wonderful contrast to the subject matter at hand. So Pat will be joining us at the half hour mark. But first, it's all about Dumbo. Uh, If you haven't seen it, many of you have 45 million at the box office this weekend. Um, Spring break is coming up. Easter week is coming up. This This is a film for children of all ages, just like the circus. Uh, However, very small children, I'd say five and under, there are some very dark moments in the film. I would uh, shy away from taking them to the film. But short of that, 
This is for, it is a family film. It is from Tim Burton, and I am in love with it. Dumbo is a darling delight. It's just pure love. One look into Dumbo's eyes, and anyone, if you haven't seen the movie, you've seen the trailers, one look into his eyes, or to see his half little mouth open with a smile, and your heart just melts as you're swept into the circus world, and more importantly, the circus family that surrounds Dumbo. It is enchantment personified, and with a heart and beauty that is a very unique spin for Tim Burton, I have to say. Um, the film, it, act, it stems from the beloved anim Disney animated classic Dumbo, but it veers off into new directions, most notably with some great messaging about animals in the wild, and that is where they belong and they should not be chained and shackled. There are some scenes, quite a few scenes, that depict shackles on the ankles of Dumbo's mother, Mrs. Jumbo, which are very hard to take, but given uh, today's climate, given what has transpired uh, in terms of circuses today, and no more elephants in shackles, no more elephant parades, uh, it really gives us a great look at, the, at time, at the timeline of circuses, uh, the traveling circuses that were really very, pre, uh, very pre, uh, prevalent and predominant throughout the United States and Europe in the early part of the 20th century and even into the mid part of the 20th century. That was one of the greatest things uh, that I loved. Not only the Ringling Brothers Circus that would go to the big arenas, but at my grandparents' house in the Jersey Shore, for years, there was a traveling circus with tents. Um, the Big Top and two other tents and sideshows that would come. And that was, you wanted to be at Grandmom's house to go to the circus and sit in the tents with the peanuts and the popcorn and watch all the wonders. But in all my years of the circus, Nothing ever quite measured up to Dumbo and his flying. And that's something that Tim Burton makes the most of here. In addition to the incredible work that's done through VFX to capture not only a very specific look in Dumbo's eyes, but what Ben Davis, cinematographer, was does in terms of creating a reflective nature so that things are reflected in Dumbo's eye, uh, and Ben's work in lighting is matched perfectly by the VFX work, uh, thanks to the VFX supervisor and his team, Richard Stammers. Um, uh, it's seamless, and it's beautiful, and it really ranks right up there with the work that Weta did in uh, the Planet of the Apes movies. But then we have what Tim Burton calls Dumbo vision, and we turn on a dime. And we see things through Dumbo's perspective, sometimes a fisheye type lens, always with a little sense of vertigo. And I had a chance to ask Tim at the recent press day about creating the eyes and also creating the sound that Dumbo makes. Dumbo doesn't speak, but there are, Dumbo has a specific sound and a very specific cadence that is a language all of its own. Take a listen to what Tim had to say. Um, 
question for you, Tim, a technical question. In developing the sound that Dumbo makes, that squeak and that cadence and pattern, and also working with Ben Davis, your cinematographer, in creating the reflective look that we have with what Dumbo sees in the reflection and then reversing that with the fisheye to give us the vertigo and Dumbo's perspective. So I'm curious how you develop those. Well, okay, what was the first part again? First was about the sound that Dumbo makes, yeah, developing that. Sound, right. Which? That's a good, uh, good connection there. Um, uh, well, we, thank you. Can I have a tin can with some string? Yes. Uh, uh, you know, we just, in fact, that just kept developing. We had a whole array of sounds, you know what I mean? And, and just varying, you know, bass, upper, lower, all that sort of stuff. And we just tried to, you know, give him a voice without him speaking, you know? Like, you know, you see with animals and things where, you know, there's a connection. It's not the exact human-human connection, but that kind of thing. So, you know, that's just part of his character and was de just developing up to even a few weeks ago. So, you know, we've been playing with that for a long period of time. And then, uh, you know, just the Dumbo, you know, because it's his movie, his character, you know, we tried to give it, so you felt like you're with him and you're in his point of view and you're with him and being in the experience with him. And the sort of Dumbo vision is probably based on the fact of seeing too many science fiction movies with alien vision, you know. And yes, indeed, Dumbo vision. We have Panavision. We have alien vision. We've got Dumbo vision. And it is well worth the experience to see that um, because it does add and it does make us see things from Dumbo's perspective and it truly does immerse us in the film. Something else that, else that immerses us in the film are the performances most notably from Nico Parker. Nico Parker is the standout in this film. There is a family, uh, a circus family that takes care of Dumbo. Uh, Father Holt, who's played by Colin Farrell, he was a renowned circus act with uh, horseman. He went away to war and lost his arm. He's come back, and he now is responsible for training Dumbo. And his two children, Millie and Joe. Nico pl uh, plays Millie, and then Finley Hobbins plays Joe. But the story really comes to life and takes flight, literally and figuratively, with Nico Parker's interaction with Dumbo. Not only does the camera love her, but she has these big brown eyes that in many ways mirror those of Dumbo, giving us her childlike wide-eyed version of the unfolding world. There is never a false moment. You believe every moment that Nico is on screen with Dumbo and the love between them. And here again, got to give a shout out to the VFX team for Dumbo's movements and the way that he looks up at Millie with his own wide-eyed wonder, or he snuggles up to her or to Joe, uh, and eventually Ava Green's character, Colette. This is pure love. And as we watch it, it makes the heart beat faster and the tears well up in our eyes. Each scene is as tender and beautiful as the next. It's just, the film is filled with so much heart, and that is what is most surprising to me that this comes from Tim Burton. Other performances, of course, Michael Keaton. Michael Keaton, slightly villainous. Um, 
is absolutely delicious. And to see him paired up again with Danny DeVito, our, our Batman and Penguin cohorts, and here they are. Uh, <clears throat> Danny DeVito plays uh, Max Medici, who is head of the Medici Circus. Um, Michael Keaton is, of course, V.A. Vanderay, who runs Dreamland. That when you look at the overhead shots of Dreamland, there's a striking resemblance to the layout of Disneyland. I just want to point that out. It's beautiful. It's gorgeous. Uh, but he, he believes in grandeur and spectacle and gloss, whereas Medici is all about heart and home and connecting on that level. But when it comes to Dreamland and it comes to the Medici Circus, uh, we've really got to give a shout-out to Rick Heinrichs, the production designer. His work is absolutely outstanding. Um, both he and Colleen Atwood, uh, who does the costuming. And I have to say, classic film fans, you will love a particular sequence in this film where a Busby Berkeley-type number is done, and Colleen Atwood's costuming is designed specifically for that number with the Art Deco look and the geometric prints and the reversal of images so that when the camera changes overhead, the look of the costume changes the whole look of, of the images. Absolutely outstanding work by Colleen. But Rick's work, really, um, it goes, the worlds are very distinct. With Dumbo, we see a new palette that we don't normally see in a Tim Burton film with a color-striped, uh, there's color striping with a noir edginess of the Medici Circus, the red and white striped tent that has some shadowed grays tinging each stripe. It's glorious in its color construction and design. But then piggybacking that are the individual sideshow stages and tents. And overall, there's a familiarity and timelessness that is beyond embraceable. Then Rick counters that with the glitz and glamour of Dreamland. Um, and it is just stunning. Things are broken down in, with great nods to Disneyland. Um, there's a vintage Tomorrowland stepping in as a world of science. Uh, the love for Walt Disney himself and his visions for the story of Dumbo and, and Walt's dreams for Disneyland are stamped all over this film. It's fabulous. Absolutely fabulous. Uh, the opulence and the Art Deco nature of Dreamland uh, is spectacular. Exceedingly high ceilings. You've got the great metaphor. The sky's the limit. Dream big. Uh, wide open spaces as opposed to the dirt and the canvas and the small boxcar um, of Max Medici's office. It's just stunning work. So I had a chance to talk to, to ask Rick and Colleen each about their respective disciplines and how they came into play to make Dumbo the beautifully exquisite film that it is. Take a listen. Congratulations, everyone. An exquisite, exquisitely designed film. And I've got to speak to Rick and Colleen here. I'm curious as to the color palette selections and your visual references beyond Tim's storyboards and, and drawings for designing, particularly the sideshow 
in the Medici Circus. The attention to detail in those individual carnival acts was just exquisite. And Colleen, not everybody gets to design costumes for a Busby Berkeley-like number, and you did. So I'd love to know what your thought process was in going into designing those specifically. <laughs> the, the, the show costumes for the Bugs, Bugsby Berkeley inspired number were, um, you know, I knew what Rick was going to do with the set and I knew what the set was. Um, I knew what the choreography was going to be. So I wanted to, I, I chose the color to sort of contrast with the color of the area it was in, but to still kind of hearken to, to kind of circus in a, in a sense. Um, I used sort of the graphicness of black trim and black detail and one like black and one like white to further kind of push the sort of graphic quality that Berkeley stuff often had where you turn and it's a different thing and you turn the other way and it's one thing which gave it another kind of level of, of visualization which I think earmarked you know those numbers back in the day and, and sort of helped sell this in that way. And then in terms of the Medici family circus and, and all the sideshow elements, um, that was really, I mean, there, there were characters that, that Aaron wrote that we were keen off of. We came up with a few others at the same time. And um, there is that lurid aspect to circuses and sideshows and all, all of that that we wanted to put across. Um, it just gives it a sense of story and character in the background and a, and a kind of a dangerous edge to it. Um, uh, and, and just the fact that the posters were always much more interesting and lurid than necessarily the reality was. We wanted to make sure that was, that was clear as well. Um, uh, but uh, yeah, that was a great, great thing to get to design and a lot of fun. And... One last thing on Dumbo. Danny Elfman, once again, scores for Tim Burton. And I think this is perhaps my favorite Danny Elfman score of a Tim Burton movie. It's beauteous on so many layers and distinctively identifiable with instrumentation and themes that come together perfectly. There's a lilt of a flute or piccolo whenever Dumbo appears that is, it's just enchanting. And there's a ukulele version of Baby Mine that is still as perfect a lullaby today as it was in 1941. But stay through the credits, people, because the end title song is a version of Baby Mine done by Arcade Fire, and it is amazing. Amazing. So if you haven't seen it, go see Dumbo. Uh, and if you have, go see it again. Um, it'll warm your heart, and your heart will soar. And right now, I am very happy that we have Sean a Sean Austin with us today. How are you, Sean? Hey, uh, good, Debbie. How are you? I'm okay. I understand Max isn't joining us. Max is sick. Right, Max, our director and uh, co-wrote with me, and he was very recently at the Cleveland International Film Festival, and I guess picked up a bug. <laughs> so he's ah, sick. he could have the same one oh. that I'm now on day 18 with. I can at least talk today. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I've I've seen that one. Uh, no, I'm not sure what it is, but uh, yeah. Anyway, so he apologizes. I apologize, uh, but look forward to well, talking with you. That's okay. You're going to have all the fun. He misses out. Awesome. I have to tell you, I didn't know what to expect with Princess of the Row. Uh, 
talk about it's a heart warmer. There are some shocking elements. Um, the story itself is amazing. And you've got yourself a breakout star with Taylor Buck in this film. Um, For sure. She, she is, this is her film. This is her film. Talk to me about how you came up with the story for Princess of the Row, which is set on, in Los Angeles' Skid Row area. That's right. Um, well, it started with uh, Max Carlson and myself had known each other uh, for years, worked together in movie advertising. And then um, we got to this point where we wanted to do a film, and Max had an idea of uh, doing a story about a veteran um, that a homeless veteran that lives on Skid Row, um, and he had grown up in L.A. area, had been around that area many times, and it was something that touched him. And he wanted to, um, uh, you know, do a movie that had uh, that as a subject matter, uh, homelessness and, and veterans affairs. And uh, he got to talking with me, and I had told him I could be passionate about. I wanted to write about something that I knew and I was passionate about. And I wanted to include an element about a father and a daughter. Um, I'm a dad myself, and um, I have lots of material from raising a daughter. And um, I wanted to um, explore that element um, and that relationship and put it down there in, in that um, sort of uh, harsh reality of Skid Row. So we kind of brought the two stories together and created um, Princess of the Row. I mean, it's, um, it's yeah. an unlikely story. But by the same token, stories of fathers and daughters are timeless, and there is a special connection uh, in stories that focus on a father-daughter relationship that I think transcends time and becomes very timeless and very universal in its appeal. And you've done that here. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, that, and that's important you know, for any stories to have that um, element of it. The core of it is something that is universally um, understood or has a universal appeal. And of course, family. Everyone knows family, right? Um, and, and has experienced that. And that um, father-daughter relationship is a really special, strong bond. Um, and to establish that, to propel the story forward, but um, to have it in this environment where you have homelessness and mental illness, uh, foster care, veterans affairs, and all that to hang on it. Um, the intent is to bring a human element to all that. Mm. So it's no longer I'm walking down the street and there's that homeless person that I just avoid and tune out and marginalize. But now, um, if I can understand them, uh, that they are human, they have a story, just like um, Bo and Alicia in our movie uh, have this story and this rich relationship. And if I could understand that about those folks I'm walking by, then they become not just objects I step over, but they're human, and I then care for them, and then I'm ready to do something to help out. Yeah, and I love the approach that you take here because, um, you know, Bo, his father, he's, he's suffered brain trauma. He's got suffering with PTSD on top of that as a result of the Iraq War. Um, he's destined to stay on Skid Row. This is his mindset. This is where he's comfortable. But he also, there are moments of lucidity and exchanges that he has, that Bo has with daughter Alicia, where he sees more for her future. And he wants her. 
he wants her to have that hope and to go forward in the future. And those exchanges are magical. And to have a daughter who loves her father so desperately that she keeps coming back, even when he tries to push her out or she tries to move forward, she will not let him go. Her love is that strong. I'm trying, how did you go about finding that kernel, that nugget, and manage to hold that through this whole film? Because you, it could have gotten sappy, it could have been overkill, but you walked that line perfectly. Oh, great. Um, you know, I think the reason why it rings so true with audiences um, is because it's really based on truth, all right? Um, everything that uh, we put into it comes from, for instance, my experience with my own daughter. Uh, my own daughter, uh, I have found, she's now 23, but I've found throughout life that she would have sacrificed herself for, for me, her dad, uh, had, had I fallen in need, you know, if I became impaired or whatever. She would have done everything to save me. Uh, that, uh, it's, um, that commitment and that love and that bond, um, it's resilient, right? Um, and um, in grabbing those kind of experiences from life and putting them into the script, um, since they're based on a real relationship, I think they just um, ring true, right? And then for um, Eddie Gathegi, uh, that's the actor's name, Eddie Gathegi's character of Bo, um, you'll notice that even though uh, that, uh, he's set up, uh, we know he was a good dad, right? But um, his um, his service to our country as a um, as a member of the military and then um, having a traumatic brain injury um, injured him enough and robbed him of his ability to um, interact with his daughter. Mm-hmm. Yet there's still a strong enough power within him as a father that during those rare lucid moments he's able to reach out to her and to. Um, look after her, let's say, and to um, care enough about her to, um, like any good parent, looking out for her well-being um, over his own needs. Right. You know, I'm curious because you've got this on paper. You have it perfectly cast. And, of course, I'd be remiss not to mention one of my favorite, favorite character actresses, Anna Ortiz, who I have enjoyed for so long. Um, and to see her here as so, as uh, Alicia's so- social worker, Magdalene, and of course, the incomparable Martin Sheen, as a mm-hmm. as a man who has run a foster home for twenty years, uh, he and his wife. This is a perfect, a perfect part for Martin. You couldn't have asked for a more perfect <laughs> casting, um, because he is so socially conscious and socially aware. But once you have the yeah, it, no, go ahead. It's like, yeah, that's exactly it. Uh, he's always been, um, you know, active in um, social awareness and campaigns and the like. And it's a funny story. Um, Max and I wrote this script uh, together, and I, I just looked up the, the first version, right, the first draft of the script, and it was three years ago uh, when we had that one done. And then, of course, it went through some more changes and everything, try to tighten and make it better. And then ultimately uh, Max says to me, hey, should we send this to this actor I know? And um, I was like, uh, sure, who is it? He's like, well, it's Martin Sheen. So, of course, I, you know, picked my jaw back up. And I was like, well, yeah, I'll send it to him, sure. So we FedEx it out to him. And uh, two days later, Max gets a uh, voicemail on his cell. It's, 
and it's Martin, and he's like, hey, Max, I read the script, and uh, sure, I'll do it. Uh, so that's when it became from just our little project together to, oh, this is bigger now. Martin Sheen is a you know a icon. He's willing to do it, and that's when, you know, in our minds, and then I think everyone's minds that became involved, that, that became something more real, you know, in a bigger, mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a bigger thing than we ever thought. And then you mentioned uh, Anna Ortiz. Um, um, she came on board, let's see, we showed the script to Eddie Gathegi, uh, who plays Bo, and, and he came on board. He read the script, and um, it immediately resonated with him. It was a topic he wanted to, to tackle. And I'll tell you this, uh, we, we always said this, uh, the character of Bo, because of his mental illness, he doesn't really communicate ra- rarely, right, throughout right. the whole movie. It was so important for us to find an actor who could pull that off. And if it yeah. was the wrong actor, it would, we were afraid it would come off as uh, a parody you mm-hmm. know, of a homeless person, as opposed to, that's a real, that's a real guy, that's a real veteran. Yeah. Uh, and um, Eddie just... You know, pegged, uh, just killed it. Just, oh, he uh, knocks it out of the uh, park. It couldn't have been anybody else. Yeah, no, he he yeah. he is outstanding in this performance because yeah. it is such a nuanced performance because of the lack of vocal skills. Right, right, right. And, and then having um, um, an artiste come on board was great. You know, uh, uh, searching for someone we knew we wanted um, this woman, a strong woman. Um, um, and um, she she read the piece and wanted to be uh, part of it. And, you know, watching her career and seeing the different roles she mm-hmm. plays, I just love the way that this role for her, I think, is a, you know, a bit different than some of the television roles that she's yeah. played. And it's deep and emotional. And I think she really, she really pulls on the maternal instinct that I'm sure she's developed as a mom. You know, even on set, we talk about you know my kids, and she talk about her, you know, her kids, et cetera. And it was, I think, that's all stuff that we all pull from, right? As writers and mm-hmm. as actors and producers and and everything, you pull from your real life, and you pull from those relationships you've developed in real life, and you know, either uh, the highs and the lows, you know, the, uh, the the trials and the triumphs, and and that's all in the script. I think it's in her performance. It's, I know it's in the. Uh, the, the scenes that we've created. Um, and again, that's why I think it resonates so well with audiences and it's so universally um, understood. Well, and something else that really elevates this film uh, is Maz Makani's cinematography. The realism that you inject here and then adding in uh, with, you know, color saturation and lighting height that gets heightened in some of Bo's manic attacks and flashbacks. Um, absolutely riveting. And then there's this great, beautiful balance to Bo's life on Skid Row and the tent that he calls home. Um, that, particularly in the third act, the sun is shining bright. It's light. It's not a dark tent. Um, it's open. It's airy. There is life surrounding it and wafting through it. These little touches add so much visually to the visual to the storytelling of Princess of the Row. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Maz. Uh, yeah, Ma- Maz is an incredible talent. Um, he had a lot of things in his background: um, music, like high, high-end music videos. Uh, 
it was Katy Perry and Lady Gaga and the like, and a lot of commercials and some feature work, some um, um, series work, right? So a big diversity. But he, again, uh, came on board uh, because he loved the story. Um, and all these folks, um, Maz and, and everyone involved, would come on board because they had an attachment to this um, to the story being told. And he was able to, I mean, we shot th- uh, four days on Skid Row. Right. Wow. Which is much like shooting in a developing country. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, we, um, but we, we, you know, had everything we needed down there, and uh, you had to roll. You know, just like you might expect, you have to roll with sort of uh, what's going on down there, and it's not always as scripted. <laughs> it's not always um, as planned. Um, and uh, Moth did a great job of capturing the reality of it. And having a gritty feel, but yet, like you said, a warmth to it, right? Mm-hmm. You know, a feeling of home, because it is Bo's home. Yeah. Um, and it's um, Alicia's home, you know, uh, for a lot of the movies. So um, to be able to capture both the grittiness, yet a warmth or even, um, you know, a love and, you know, uh, and, and magical elements also. Mm-hmm. You know, there and in, in uh, we shot in Malibu, we shot in uh, Burbank, we shot in... East L.A., um, we shot all around the area, and he was able to capture all those images and, and you know, uh, make uh, this really um, moving story um, through his visual storytelling. Oh, I mean, he created, I mean, he really gave, brought a humanity to Skid Row with his lensing. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, as you mentioned earlier, objects. The you know these people are not objects, and he really created right. a humanity with the imagery yeah. that he captured. Um, yeah, just beautifully, beautifully done. Um, one yeah, I like that description. Um, and you know, as I mentioned um, earlier, that's really it, right? Um, we're we're all humans, uh, and we all have these different backgrounds, and we have these different circumstances, but. Um, you know, our movie is not going to present some sort of solution for homelessness or veteran no. affairs or mental illness or you know, foster care or any of that. But it touches on all those things. But uh, you know, ultimately, if if anyone, if you can get anything from this, is to see the humanity of um, all these folks involved. Um, and once we um, start looking at each other as humans and as having value. Um, then we can start breaking through some of those um, uh, stereotypes or the barriers and start helping each other. And out of that, I have no doubt, solutions start happening mm-hmm. you know, once we start seeing each other that way. And, and the way we see each other and learn about each other is to learn our stories, you know, learn our backgrounds, learn our stories, learn what we like, what we dislike. I mean, what, um, what, you, yeah, and what then, you and Max yeah. do with Princess of the Row is you open our eyes and our hearts. That is exactly what you do with this film. Mm-hmm. And well, one and once both are open, then the possibilities are endless. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And and um, like you said, uh, Taylor Buck is our lead. Uh, we love Taylor. She she's undiscovered. I know. Right? Yeah. She's uh, she was in a. Um, uh, well, she was an Annabelle, Annabelle creation, creation, and then she had a one-off, one-off, an American Crime Story, and a couple mm-hmm. others. But yeah, this is her big, this is her moment. And yep, and it hangs on her. 
and uh, she's the central character. She is our hero. Um, she is the one ultimately making the decisions, and it's um, I love it. I love that um, she is all that, and she completely stepped up and and brought so much to the role. Um, I tell you, each of we've started the festival circuit, and each of the festivals um, pr- immediately praise the acting. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're me- immediately captivated by um, Eddie and Taylor and those roles, and um, they bring it to life. They make it real for us. Well, um, for- I, I hope out of this that you know something happens for Taylor, and uh, she can launch onto her grand career because she certainly deserves it. Oh, absolutely. And of course, anybody in the L.A. area that wants to see Princess of the Row, you can see it this Wednesday, April 3rd at 8 o'clock as part of the Beverly Hills Film Festival. Uh, yes, and that's, and that's, our it's last, the, that's our last screening in the L.A. area. So oh. make sure to catch it. And it's down. At, it's at the Chinese Six in Hollywood. At, yep. the, at the man's, at the Chinese Six upstairs, uh, right next to the Chinese Theater. Um, and definitely, this is this is a must-see film, without a doubt, a must-see film. Um, I mean, Sean, unfortunately, we're all out of time. This is, I, I have to have you back on the show to talk more, you and Max, to talk more about the film and other projects you have coming up. Uh, we'd love to. I mean, there's so many stories that came out of this movie alone. Uh, we could talk for hours. Oh. Just great stuff. Well, uh, you and, have uh, to come back. Yeah, yeah it's just yeah. you well, have to. You have no choice. Well, uh, <laughs> there it is. I guess we will. Well, oh. thank you so much. Thanks for your time. It was a pleasure talking to you, and thanks for your kind words. Sean, thank you so much. And everybody, Princess of the Row, Beverly Hills Film Festival, Wednesday, August 3rd at Man's, Man's Theaters in Hollywood. Thanks, Sean. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Um, okay, we had Pat. Our call dropped out. Did it drop out? Okay, I don't know. I Pat was on hold. And... Okay, what is... Okay, Pam is playing with the phones to find out where the call went. Okay. Well, why don't we take a quick break, Pam? And hopefully Pat will call back in. Um, so we'll be right, right back after whatever it is that Pam pops up here. Hi, it's Olivia Munn with my shelter pets, Frankie and Chance. Say hi, guys. <laughs> When I adopted them, I discovered that they both have incredible personalities. Chance's sole purpose in life is to love and to be loved. Frankie is a little bit of a scoundrel and always entertaining. They're a little bit of a lot of things, but they're all pure love. Adopt pure love at theshelterpetproject.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council, the Humane Society of the United States, and Maddie's Fund. A powerful threat calls for a greater response. Not tomorrow. Not in a few years. But right now. Some battles must be faced together. Cancer fighters stand up to cancer every day. And you can be part of this battle too. Visit standuptocancer.org to learn more. 
Together, we can save lives. And we're back. And joining us right now on Behind the Lens is Director Pat McGee. Hi, Pat. Hi, this is Pat. How are you? I'm fine. How are you doing? Oh, great director of American Relapse. I'm doing well. What? This, this, is, this isn't live, is it? It is. Oh, it is live? Yes. Well, thanks for having me. I'm also here with the other, my, uh, my co-director, Adam Lincoln. Hi, how's it going? Good Hi, Adam. Welcome to both of you. I got to tell you, I didn't know what to expect when I watched this documentary. Number one. This doc is so cinematic. It is high gloss. It is high polished. It is beautiful to watch. Your transition scenes are spectacular. The editing is off the charts. And that's just for starters. And then we get in to the, the 72 hours with Frankie and Allie. Wow. Wow, guys. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for those compliments. You know, I, I just like to say we have such an amazing team. You know, Adam, my co-director, he was also the editor, um, one of the editors, and he just did a, a remarkable job. And we have our our DP, uh, Mike Goodman, another camera guy, Greg Taylor, and Terry, another producer, did all the graphics. I mean, we can't thank them enough and just acknowledge them because it really was a work of um, just an amazing collection of people that cared deeply about the subject. But then at the end of the day, it's really just as you were getting to point out, it's really about Frankie and Allie. It's about their story and their window into this world. And they trusted us to tell their story um, with dignity. And, um, you know, it takes a lot of courage to do. Well, you know, it's very dicey whenever you're doing a documentary of subject matter of this nature with junkies, with drug addicts, uh, rehab, because so often people don't want to be on camera. They don't. There's an embarrassment for many people that they have gone down this road, that they are hitting rock bottom. Um, and it takes a lot to build up trust to allow a camera to be there. So I'm curious, number one, where did the idea for this particular story come from, for American Relapse? And then follow the challenges of putting all the puzzle pieces together to actually go shoot this over the course of 72, 72 hours, no less. Well, thank you for that question. I mean, you know, this this um, came to us from Jamie Mannheimer and his brother Ian. Jamie went to high school with Allie, so he knew her and he knew her story. Uh, he approached us and said, look, you know, there's a really important story going on here. Allie's an amazing character. Frankie's an amazing character. And, you know, when Adam and I met them, we knew that there was something there. Um, we knew that she was this remarkable person that was, and just the way they're so different, I think, Frankie and Allie, and kind of represent the spectrum of uh, people suffering from addiction. And, you know, I think it's not someone with the clipboard judging them. It's people who are in there in the trenches, in the streets. You know, I think that was important. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, also, the 72 hours was important because what we really wanted to do is show how fluid everything is. Uh, it's a life or death pace. You know, these people don't stop. And there's that urgency that I think, you know, that this film reflects. Mm-hmm. And uh, we thought it was going to be over on Monday, but then, you know, as you know, more things happened and more things occurred, so we had to follow up for six months. And, uh, but, you know, people battling it, 
person that have the courage to, to share their story, they want others to know what they're going through and the pain and suffering. So, um, you know, as, as filmmakers, we know it's about the story, it's about the access, and it's about that trust, like you said. Mm-hmm. Was it difficult to gain the trust of Frankie and Allie to let their stories be told? And then with the people that they were looking for, such as Kelly, such as Connor, um, such as Tabitha, um, you know, was there any kind of reticence or reluctance on the part of anybody to let it, have a camera there capturing all of this when you're at your ultimate either self, self-created self high or self-created low? I think um, having, having Frankie and Allie there basically gave us a legitimacy and, and helped uh, people that Allie and Frankie were treating trust us. They saw that Frankie and Allie trusted us, and I think that helped us a lot. Uh, sorry, we're at the International Film Festival in Cleveland right now, and it's a little loud. Oh, that's okay. That's okay. You know, how did you go about, uh, were you tracking, did you have an idea of how you, of how you wanted to tell this story? Or did you just, was this just a free flow through the entire night uh, and the consecutive days for those three days and nights? Did you have any idea what would be unfolding? Or was it just fly by the seat of your pants and go with the flow? It was absolutely fly by the seat of our pants. We did not know what the film's last act would be. We didn't know where it was going. And that was something we acknowledged early on. You know, we were going to introduce Frankie and Allie, our audiences to Frankie and Allie, and explain the world. But we did not know who the subjects, other subjects were going to be mm-hmm. or what was going to happen to them. And we just had a trust in filming this weekend would represent an important microcosm of the entire uh, opioid epidemic in Florida. Mm-hmm. What kind of research did you do in preparation of this film? Because you do provide us through your inset title cards with a lot of information uh, in terms of Delray, it's Delray Beach itself. Uh, the drug population there, the the, cri- the opioid crisis that's happening there, the rehab crisis, but then all these intricacies I had no clue about, the insurance scams and all of this that's going on. So this had to involve, had to have involved quite a bit of research on your parts. Or did Allie and Frankie become uh, some of your research encyclopedias? A little bit of both. Uh, we had several reports that we read up on some of the claims that had been filed in Florida and in the country, uh, both state and uh, federal. And then Frankie and Allie also just giving us so much insider information about how it all really works. And then once it was all shot over the weekend, us going back and researching more and more. And um, there's also uh, a... Nicole Lucas, a member of the Silver Homes Task Force, who's in the film, and getting more information from her on, you know, how the law sees um, the things that happen in the film and the things that are going on in Florida. So there were several stages of research we did, but I think it's important just how much we got from Frankie and Allie, these people who were so deeply embedded in this world, you know? Mm-hmm. You know, what I find interesting is that normally when we see documentaries of this nature, it's filled with talking heads, um, law enforcement. You get all different perspectives. Here you have one law enforcement officer 
that you interview and in and interject in certain uh, spots within the editing. Very judiciously used, I might add. So kudos to Adam and the rest of the editing team on that. But what you know? Why didn't you seek more interviews from, say, the insurance industry, say, counselors at some of these detox places, or more law enforcement? I'm I'm curious because we're so used to seeing that in documentaries of this nature, and we don't have that here. So you stand out from the pack, which is great. I think that's a really good a really good question, and. You know, the reason is we really want to tell this, this story from the bottom up. We want this entry point to be from Frankie Alley to recovering addicts, helping other addicts. You know, this film wasn't about the experts with the PhDs. It wasn't about law enforcement. It wasn't about, um, you know, the, the politicians or, you know, government. It was really about, it's really about the people in the trenches at the bottom. And we figured, you know, we've seen those other ones. There's other docs that have, like, 10 points of view from every, you know, talking head. Yep. The only talking heads that we really see is Frankie and Alex, and then we talked to uh, Nicole Lucas. And it's, we thought by coming from the bottom up, um, that was a really good insight into this world. Also, just uh, by focusing on character and personal crises, uh, I think it becomes – it becomes more personal, and I think there's a lot more humanity into it, and that basically helps crush the stigma of addiction and understand, you know, you feel like you know these people, and that was really important for us. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the, one of the really um, outstanding relationships that we see is a relationship between Allie and her best friend Kelly, who still keeps falling back in. I mean, the queen of relapse. Um, she and she's got kids at stake. And that really, capturing that, really hammers home, hammers home the humanity and the true crisis that we are facing here. And did you have any kind of reservations about including that uh, when you were in post-production or, or trimming or cutting out part of that? Um, well, uh, uh, so, I mean, Kelly is Allie's best friend, so I think it is key to include as much of uh, Kelly's story as possible mm-hmm. because that what happens in that story affects Allie so much and yeah. tears her apart so much but she keeps going she keeps believing in her friend and that's Allie is the hope of the story Allie stares down hopelessness with yep. hope and that is the optimism of the film I think and that was really important for us to have in there I mean Allie is she is the strongest element in this film I mean, she truly, her passion is contagious. It is infectious. You believe every, every word that comes out of her mouth. She's been there. She's done that. But that really comes across the sincerity uh, that she has and how she really wants to help these people. Um, you know, that just that rises to the top of this entire documentary. And I'm curious if you saw that while you were shooting or if that's something that started to come together when you went back and looked at your footage in post-production and editing. Honestly, I think it was a little both. I mean, we, we didn't really know Allie that well. We only mm-hmm. had met her like once or twice before we started shooting. So, you know, you can always, 
you know, they say judge a book by its cover or don't judge a book by its cover. It's so true with Allie. I mean, she wears these pastel colors and this platinum blonde hair, and she just maybe she looks like the you know the stereotypical South Beach or Florida person, but mm-hmm. that's not the case. I think you know Adam did an, an expert job kind of setting setting her up because I think at the beginning of the film you think okay she's just this kind of person, but it's not. I mean, she's a hero. I mean, I've seen her save people in the streets. I've seen her, you know, go deep into really, really dangerous areas because she wants to help people. And I think that, you know, we didn't really know her that well when we went out and shot. And I think a lot of it came through in the edit, too. Mm-hmm. And at first, we thought Frankie was going to be, you know, probably the, the biggest driving force. The driving force, right? And then I think we started to discover through. Well, in the edit, uh, I think, you know, at the start of the film, you really feel like Frankie might be your star. But as it goes, Allie's persona just rises to the top and you, you know, witness other people's failure. But her, her strength just becomes so evident, I think. Oh, yeah. I mean, we're not it's by the time we get out of the first third of the film, Allie is the one that's who you're focusing on. You're listening very intently to every word she says you're watching every move she makes. You see pain on her face. You see her emotions. Before we're a third of the way into the film, she is who you're focusing on. And it's astounding to watch her. Uh, and then as we get more and more embedded in what she's doing, just amazing. Whereas with Frankie, um, he kind of dwindles. He dwindles. The The perceived driving force kind of goes into goes into neutral. And I thought that was really interesting uh, how that unfolds within the doc. Absolutely. And, you know, you know that turn comes at the midway point in the film. Mm-hmm. And we basically create uh, an unreliable narrator so that uh, everything that's being said in that second half, you can take it one way or you can take it the other. Yep. And basically, it lets the viewer decide a lot and creates a whole other dimension of the film. And I think that once we found the place placement for that, it created, a, you know, a powerful second half. You know, I'm curious. I, wanted, no, go well, ahead. I was just going to say, I just wanted to add, it's really exciting because, when, you know, we're at the Cleveland International Film Festival, and we had two screenings, packed houses, and, and there's a lot of people that either know the recovery world or they just like documentaries. And exactly your point like people are coming out saying the same thing like oh my god this alley are you kidding me i never saw that coming and frank and so you're starting to see you know people's reactions that you know we just opened up in uh, los angeles and new york and alley's literally in new york at the cinema village after every screening doing a meet and greet with people because she wants to hear her story a lot of people that are you know battling recovery you know she's there to talk and, wow. um, you know, the, the people that are coming out are sharing their story. And it's been such a powerful film for to start that conversation. Yeah. Oh, my God. You know, I've got to ask you, um, in terms of the editing and, and a lot of your transition sequences um, for Adam, um, I love how you incorporate these old, you know, 1950s vintage type ads, you know, the, the old health kind of films you'd see in, in school. Um, where did you come up with? the great contrast that you have with these transitions. 
Um, you, you're using dissolves. You've got, you know, multi-split screens. You've got insets. You have these vintage-type ads. It's so eclectic. And it almost mirrors what you would envision an addict's brain might be on, jumping from one thing to another um, with super-saturated color. So I'm curious how you came about developing all these transitions that you used. I think a lot of it had to do with the idea of contrast. Um, we didn't want it to just be, you know, recreations of needle use. We didn't want it just to be talking heads. And we started putting together these awesome graphics with these screens spinning around. And for the uh, vintage stuff, I think all of those also represent an element of capitalism and, you know, kind of profiteering and America mm-hmm. uh, at its core. And so it just lets the audience create more ideas in their head and creates a deeper level to the film, I think. I mean, I think it's wonderful. And that really, that is really what helps elevate this and takes it out of just a typical documentary and gives it this very cinematic uh, approach and feel and really helps engage the audience even more, uh, which is so important with the content that you have happening here. Um, I'd be remiss not to ask you about Dennis Hill's work with your score. You do have some scoring here, and it's great. So, you know, so often with documentaries, people will overlook the score. You didn't. Talk to me about about incorporating some music here. The music is a collection of just amazing artists. I mean, Dennis Hill is also a producer of the film, has worked with us on a number of projects including 24 to Life, a documentary series where we fought people 24 hours before they incarcerated. And he's been a professional musician since, I think he was like 20. And he is so passionate about telling stories. And he's, he's one of those gifted people that you just, you know, so modest and I sit there and he writes these songs and you're like, God, so good. But anyway, you have him and then you have Flip Machine from Berlin that we use a lot of their music. Um, you know, Dennis Hill and his wife, you know, recorded a song. And then we have about another 15 amazing artists that we found on SoundCloud mm-hmm. that were all so important. And we, we literally, um, we released a, a soundtrack on SoundCloud. It's American Relapse soundtrack, and it's on SoundCloud.com. But um, thank you for pointing that out. I mean, it means a lot to us because it's, it's part of the whole picture. And, you know, when you have artists really helping out with this picture, because there's a lot of people in the artist community that struggle with addiction. Um, and for them to come out and be a big part of this project, including Denver Till and uh, Drift Machine and Bog Lane and Gold Myth and, I mean, Luton and Amsterdam. And we have people in Amsterdam, um, Japan, Mustera from Puerto Rico. From Puerto Rico. I mean, it's pretty, I mean, you know, we just had some guy come up to us uh, after one of the screenings. And every, you know, every once in a while, we get a question, where'd you get that soundtrack? And it's amazing what artists will do and they're passionate about something and they lend their, their support and love for a project. No, I mean, it's, it just adds another whole layer here. You know, where, we're, unfortunately, guys, we're, we are just about out of time for the show. I'm curious, where can people see American Relapse right now? So right now, we're playing at the Monica Film Park in Santa Monica. And that's uh, all week. And then we're also at the Cinema Village in New York, in Greenwich Village. And on Tuesday, 
will uh, be released on video on demand. So iTunes, Amazon, all the places, Google Play, all that stuff. And the one thing as an independent filmmaker, where you know, we're out here doing this for the love of. If, if people watch the film and they can actually take a second just to go to Rotten Tomatoes um, and just review the film, it means a lot to us because there's a big machine out there and we're just part of it. And, and when you're doing independent film, it's about people like you that are taking the time to share our story and share this film. So we can't thank you enough for your time and, and, and your support. Oh, guys, I can't thank the, the two of you enough. I mean, this has been fabulous. I hope you'll come back on the show again because I know, Pat, you've always got a project in the works. We're trying. April 5th, we have another film uh, called The Deported, and that opens up world premiere at the Beverly Hills International Film Fest Friday, April 5th, and Adam's uh, editor and producer on that as well. Um, so we, we, we're just blessed that we have such a good team that we've been working together for about nine years, and that team is, is uh, we're, we're doing you know projects that, that we really care about, and uh, it's a lot of fun, to tell you the truth. Well, guys, thank you so much, and everybody, check it out. American Relapse, the Monica Four Now, Cinema Village, New York. Tomorrow, it's on VOD. Um, well worth a watch, um, and actually more than once, because you're gonna you're gonna learn an awful lot that uh, I guarantee you didn't know before. Guys, thank you so much, and I can't wait to talk to you again. Yeah, it was a pleasure. Thank you so much for your support. Awesome. Keep up the great work. Thanks, Adam. Thanks, Pat. Bye-bye. And those were Pat McGee and Adam Lincolnhelt, uh, co-directors of American Relapse. Uh, So, wow. Some powerhouse films today. Um, So I'm glad we started off with Dumbo. So that we could soar and take flight and have something light and and loving. Um, That is all the time we have today. Next week, the girls are back. The movie mavens themselves are back. Because next week, TCM Film Festival starts on April 11th at the Chinese Theater in Hollywood. So next Monday, we're going to be doing our annual pre-TCM Film Fest show. So until then... I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens.